Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-host, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hey, readers and writers, welcome to this episode number 335 of Charlotte Rears Podcast Beyond 300. I'm here with co-host Sarah Archer and Hannah LaRue, and we've got a great lineup for you today. Yeah, we sure do. We have an author feature with Marjorie Hudson in her novel Indigo Field, uh, which New York Times bestselling author Sue Monk Kidd called A Mesmerizing Story of Loss, Injustice, and Revenge Conspiring to Darken the Human Heart. Up next, we have a two-minute tip from Charlotte Litt, um, and Paul Reale shares The Biology of Writing, Part 2, Where You Write. Yeah, and then we've got a uh, blog post uh, by none other than our very own Sarah Archer. It's on the art of receiving feedback. Yeah, and then after that, we're going to finish up with our book recommendations, um, pitches, community and listener engagement, and what's coming in the next episode. But first, what's up with the podcast books? This month, we're celebrating the release of book two in the Right Quote series titled Learning to Write. Yes, we are. We're super excited to share these quotes. They're inspirational. They're practical. There's a lot of good advice in there. Um, We've pulled them from over 500 podcast interviews with hardworking, award-winning, and New York Times bestselling authors in more than 33 U.S. states and five countries. Yeah, and this book reveals how writers really feel about learning to write. Um, if you want to learn more, you can just go to our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com, uh, and click on the Podcast Books tab in the menu bar. Um, you can order this book online and in print wherever books are sold. Also, don't forget that the first book in the Write Quote series, um, which is called The Writing Life, can be downloaded for free online. It's the best deal you can find. <laughs> so it's our gift to the writing universe, and you can look for the link for that on the Podcast Books page of our website. Yeah, free is always a great way to sell books. You know, mm-hmm. it's free. And you can also pre order the upcoming books in the series now. Um, when you do, you really help support the podcast. Uh, as we said, we're releasing Learning to Write uh, this this uh, month. Uh, and we're releasing other books uh, on the first of every month uh, between now and October. Um, and we're just kind of taking it into progression. Book three is Writing Process and Tools. Book four, Storytelling, Inspiration, and Research. Book five, Writing Techniques and Characters, which I think is the thickest book because that's all the ways you put a book together. Uh, Book six is Writing Community, Revision and Editors. And book seven, uh, The Emotional Writing Journey, which I really enjoy. It's how writers really feel about, really feel about, really feel about writing. (laughs) Really, really, really feel. (laughs) uh, Yeah, how they really feel. And then book eight, Publishing and Book Marketing, uh, which uh, is essential to uh, getting your book out into the world. Yeah, and uh, like I said, the first book, you can download the ebook for free. But if you want to receive all of the books for free, you can join our street team. Um, there's a link on the contact tab in the menu bar at uh, charlottereaderspodcast.com. You can join through there. And also on the podcast books page of the website, there's a link. All you have to do to get all of the books in the series for free is to agree to just leave your short, honest reviews online about the books. You know, just a few words about how you felt about the books, um, maybe something that you took away from them. They're not heavy reads, um, but they are full of weighty tips and reflections and lots of good material in there yes so many good things and don't forget that if you become a patreon supporter of the show for as little as five dollars a month um, we will give you all the books for free before they release and that's in addition to the 150 exclusive interviews that are not normally on the show Um, you'll be able to access on our patreon channel on the craft and business of writing yeah we're really proud of this uh put a lot of work into it to pull these books together but it's really uh the authors who are speaking uh through these books uh we're not telling you how to write uh we're just sharing all this great uh these great reflections and uh really the these inspirational thoughts about uh, the writing process and, and the writing life so check it out uh we love you to be on our street team or be a patreon supporter or if you don't want to do either one of those you just want to buy the book and support the podcast that'd be great too We have an affiliation with Libro.fm because you can get audiobooks from them, and when you do, you support independent bookstores. If you'd like to sign up with them for your audiobooks, use the promo code CHARLOTTEREADER and claim your free audiobook. All right, we're back with Act One. Uh, this is our interview segment of the show. Uh, we've got an uh, interview with, uh, that Hannah did with Marjorie Hudson. The book is titled 
Indigo Field. Hannah, tell us a little bit about Marjorie. Marjorie is amazing. You will totally feel her infectious energy in this interview. Um, <laughs> she is an award-winning author. She was born in the Midwest but raised in Washington, D.C., um, and her home is now in North Carolina out in Pittsburgh. She's the author of Accidental Birds of the Carolinas, which is a collection of stories, and Searching for Virginia Dare, um, which is kind of a history travelogue book. And her essays and short, and short stories plumb the depths of the human heart. She lives on Century Farm with her husband Sam and dog DJ, where she mentors writers and reads poetries to trees. Very accurate. <laughs> so, uh, Sarah, give us sort of the the synopsis of the book. Yeah, it sounds um, very interesting and traumatic. It says in this novel of moral reckoning, the unjust outcome of a murder trial and the chance accident that follows result in a feud that raises the spirits of the dead, forcing enemies to become allies in order to survive. Mm. And got a little praise too, right? Yeah, Sue Monk Kidd calls Indigo Field a mesmerizing story of loss and justice and revenge conspiring to darken the human heart. And uh, Dale Neal, author of Appalachian Book of the Dead, says um, Indigo Field gives us genius in the ancient sense of that word, the spirit animating a place. Marjorie Hudson is a spiritual geographer, charting the landscape of a changing Carolina community and its intertwined lives, past and present, black and white, rich and poor. Like Pat Conroy before her, Hudson writes up a mighty storm in this moving and satisfying novel. Yeah, we had Dale Neal on the podcast before with his book, Appalachian Book of the Dead, which is a very interesting uh, take on what uh, ghosts can do in the Appalachian region. So, uh, well, let's, let's don't delay any longer. Let's, uh, let's get to Hannah's interview with uh, Marjorie. I read a lot of books <laughs> and I love Southern fiction, literary fiction. It's so, such a beautiful story and it's, it's almost, it almost reads kind of like a song to me, just oh, very lyrical. Oh. So beautiful. I love that. Um, so you. I'm, yeah, well, I'm so excited to be able to kind of, um, pick your brain a little bit today and talk more about the book. So I know that you're a longtime activist. You've been kind of um, doing the hard work in the field for many years now. Um, how did that kind of impact your writing for this book? And where did you get the inspiration to write such a deeply layered story? Oh, boy, it's, uh, it's true. I'm an activist. And I think it was just about um, in the early 90s, three things happened that I can kind of trace as the roots for this. Um, one is I was researching um, the 20 nations of native people in Eastern Carolinas, east of the Cherokee nation. And um, part of my research was standing on the site of the headquarters of the Tuscarora people. Um, and I became quite haunted by that moment. Um, it brought uh, Native people alive for me in a way that I hadn't experienced before. Um, another thing that happened is I went to my uh, my daughter's middle school class uh, to teach about the Native people I'd been studying. And um, I discovered in that moment that the school was named for a Black man and that they didn't talk about it. And that was really strange to yeah. me. I was not from here. I thought, what is that about? And I began to kind of study that and learn this huge block of Black history that had been suppressed in my community. Um, and then the third thing was I was walking down my road one day, walking my dog, and uh, I lived uh, on a farm road. Most of the traffic was tractors. And uh, a man came jogging towards me, an older man. He was very fit looking, but um, quite a bit older than me. And I thought, he's not wearing the right clothes for this road. I mean, who is this guy? I'm not, you know, it was just that, in that time in Chatham County, people didn't really jog down the roads. They do now, but mm -hmm. they didn't then. And um, as he passed, he looked up at me and he looked me in the eye and had this expression of great devastation on his face. And it hit me like a blow. And I, I couldn't, I couldn't say or do anything. It just, I just felt his feelings of grief and devastation. And I, I was like, what in the world is that about? I had been writing fiction. I just started publishing fiction stories and I said to a friend of mine the next day, I am going to write a novel about that man. 
So that man, the history of Native people in the Carolinas, yeah. the existence of Native people in the present time, and repressed uh, Black history um, all began to work on me in the creation of this, of this novel. You know, it kind of makes sense to me that there was three different instances that kind of inspired the book because it's such a layered story that you can kind yeah. of tell that there's a lot of different things that happened in your brain to kind of create this master story. And I think it's interesting you just used the word haunting. Um, so just a lot of the, the feeling that I, that I got when I was reading this book um, is like how places are just sort of they have like that haunted aspect to them is just based off of what's happened in their history um so the yeah. feelings that you get i know you kind of add uh something i love that you do is you add kind of personality to trees and birds and uh <laughs> you know things like that that kind of make a place a place um so i mean i i don't know how did you kind of do all of that you know how did you take all of these different things that you were learning about in your life and what inspired you how you researched black history all that kind of stuff and put it into this novel right you know um the best way i can explain that is say there there are some writers who kind of borrow their grandmother's life or mm -hmm. um, their best friend's life to write about um i don't do that i have a sort of block against that but I do borrow place. Place is very important to me. And I, and I borrow um, the feelings and voices that I uh, uh, notice around me. And in the course of, we were talking about activism, in the course of living in my community, I became active in all kinds of different communities. And I saw this kind of big picture um, with nature, with uh, church people, with uh, farmers who live next door to me. I, I sold at the farmer's market. I got to know all different kinds of people. There's such extraordinary diversity here. And through being an activist to promote the black history that I saw that was repressed, I began to have entry into lots of other different communities. And the whole of where I lived was something I wanted to express, which sounds insane. Maybe it is. No. But um, no. <laughs> I wanted to show how we live kind of separately, but we're all connected. And that was the impetus for writing something, a story so complex with three main characters and three right. second, secondary characters and different worlds, the worlds of the farmers and the worlds of the farmer's market and the, the guys at the right. gas station and the retirement village and the little old black lady who's living up the road and everybody kind of avoids her because she's a little strange and she's very, very angry. So um, I, uh, I love the complexity of my community. I um, am very, I kind of fell in love with the community here and it became my muse um on uh, the nature of the birds but also the people i just fell in i mean i fell in love with my husband yeah. here but i also fell in love with the farmers at the farmers market and my neighbors who were very generous and you know people uh, the food at the potluck supper you know at the church and yeah. um people who were um lifting up community in so many different ways we have a river festival i got to be witness and participant in the beginning of that. We have an arts studio tour. I got to be a witness and participant in the beginning of that. And I just, I feel like I live in a very special place. And I hope that that is part of what I, what people get, the expression of, of a home place that's so, that sparks so much delight in a way, despite the history right. and the difficulty. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's when you were saying spark, I was thinking sparkle. Um, I think just like you get this sort of sparkly feeling about the place that you're in when you're reading this book. And you mentioned food, <laughs> like the food that you do such a great job describing food in this book. I <laughs> Sometimes I'll be like, I'm so about hungry. That. I want, I want to <laughs> write a cookbook. There's some really good recipe and food in here that I, I think I, oh know, my gosh, I know. Strawberry Do you, shortcake like a, and, Miss Reba's pound cake with rosemary and 
the secret sassafras ingredient and um lots of it is desserts <laughs> but yeah. um yeah so good i was about to say you should make a cookbook for miss reba i feel like that would be fantastic <laughs> all right let's get on it let's work on and that i just love her Yes. Deal. Next project. Um, She's just amazing. And I, you know, one of the big things I just feel like it's really astonishing and amazing how you were able to write about her so well, just like a perspective of a black woman and uh, the role of, uh, you know, you mentioned earlier, just feeling so angry and it's hard for white people to really understand why that is. Um, So really it's like, different people can be in the same place, but have very different experiences because of the generational trauma aspect. So can you just talk a little bit about how you fleshed out that character? Um, Sure. You know, she is completely imagined. um, But because in my community work, um, I, I spent a lot of, a lot of time being like the only white person in the room. Um, to my surprise. I mean, mm-hmm. I just ended up in those kinds of situations and I ended up clo- very close to several black families. And I, um, I, uh, you know, uh, there, there were people, families in my church that I became close to as part of the activism and who were, who were African-American. And I, I would, um, it was just a huge part of my life to bridge that gap and, and have it disappear, you know? And I think somebody who grew up on her grandmother's knee and she was black and she grew up where I grew up would have written it differently. But what I noticed as a person intersecting with a world that often is very separate from the the white world um, is that uh, the people I met did not express much anger except uh, once in a while they would confide in me and I could see that leaking out. There was, um, this gorgeous and beautiful spiritual thing that happens with people who've been traumatized where, um, they often go to church and get lifted up by that. Um, and church speaks to them, especially black churches, I think are all about healing, um, in my experience. And, um, but there are people I imagine if I were in the situation that some of my neighbors might be in, I'm not sure I would be healed by that. I think I might hold a lot of anger in my heart. And uh, um, the uh, character, Miss Reba, she has a moment that I identify with a lot um, where she tells this little boy she's taken in that she believes in God and Jesus, but what she doesn't tell him is that she doesn't really, since her, her niece Danielle was murdered, she doesn't like them very much anymore. So I can see feeling right. that way very clearly. And because some of the um, my friends and neighbors and associates would kind of turn to me from time to time and tell me things that they weren't telling to other people, I became aware I guess, you know, it's a way that, that writers have to be aware. Henry James said it. You have to pay attention to things that, that other people aren't paying attention to. Um, and then, of course, um, more recently, I think my, my novel was pretty much finished when white supremacists showed up and started waving flags in front of um, this local school and the courthouse in protest of taking down the monuments. Yeah work the confederacy and i began to see that um you know as that movement progressed i began to see just the heartbreak that people have felt their children being made afraid by scary soldiers i mean i'm just i it just it it fills me with rage sometimes it breaks my heart and fills me with rage you know some of the things that are happening in our culture so um I know I'm not alone with that. And I imagine what it must be like to really tell the truth about your generational traumas through uh, Jim Crow back to indigenous times if you had both Tuscarora and black heritage. 
Um, so right. that's where she comes from. And she rose up like a voice in a storm inside of me. Um, <laughs> and I, you know, I, you know, at my peril was I She's going amazing. to ignore her. And she really kind of takes over the book, I think. Um, she oh she uh, does I mean she's it was yeah. very quick that she becomes like you know your favorite I think when you're reading yeah. um and I just I mean you feel so much for her too I feel like mm-hmm. throughout the entire story did mm-hmm. you find yourself getting emotional a lot while you were writing oh yes indeed oh certainly yeah I my heart hurt and uh sometimes I would cry and um I still feel very moved when I read some of the scenes. Um, you know, they, they, they still break my heart. Um, and yeah. uh, I, um, I love the, the characters very much, all of them, including the Colonel, who's a big grouch most of too. the time, but he breaks my heart in a different way. You know, he, yeah. um, I just, I, you know, I know why he had that look of devastation. Um, and uh, uh, the voices that he hears in his in his um, awareness of the dead are are accusing him of things that, right. that he feels very guilty about. So, well, he and, um, uh, yeah, I think he and Miss Reba have, you know, they both are dealing with intense grief. Um, so yeah. it's something that, you know, you think about quite a bit throughout the book and just you sort of see how both of them, um, I guess, embark on a journey towards healing in different ways. So it's yeah. something that I think is really powerful also because it's also something, you know, every person kind of deals with in their life too. And you just sort of have to, um, you know, especially when it comes to death and hearing the voices of the dead and just sort of like, right. you know, communicating with them in your own way or thinking about what they'd be telling you and all that kind of stuff. And, um, it's just really powerful. And I, I love the Colonel too, honestly, he, he is kind of a, <laughs> he's yeah. a, he's a multidimensional character. He's great. Um, I think yes. that's a good point for me to kind of see if you want to do a quick reading for us. Yes, I would love to, um, you know, uh, so far this comes in about a quarter of the way in, it takes that long for a true intersection between Miss Reba and the Colonel. Um, Perfect. And yeah, Miss <laughs> Reba has been grieving and just stewing about um, so angry that the the white man who killed, who murdered her niece, has gotten off with a light sentence, and she's been remembering her and it's been hurting her heart and she's driving home from the feed store. Um, And uh, the Colonel, as is his habit, has gone running and he's talking on the cell phone with his daughter who's telling him what he ought to do with his life and what he ought to eat and all this sort of thing. So this is in Miss Reba's voice. Up ahead, there's that white man in the red ball cap again jogging in place in front of the sunrise gas and grill, skinny white legs sticking out his shorts, talking on the cell phone. Old man should have more dignity than to run around half naked like that. She's looking at him so hard that for the first time in her life, she misses her turn onto Field Road. Now the man goes to cross the highway, not looking where he's going, still talking on that phone, and her with ball tires, road wet, got to jam on brakes and slide to stop. Man runs into her car, hits it hard, goes down, cell phone flying, and she can't see him. Lord Jesus, has she killed a white man in broad daylight right here in front of the sunrise grill? But no, she can see him crawling around in her side mirror, picking up his phone, pushing up off the ground, looking surprised to see her sitting there. Like where he comes from, there are no cars on the roads. Man puts up up his hands like he's under arrest, mouths, sorry. Miss Reba shakes her head. Man wasn't hurt at all. Her heart may need repair. Man ducks past the Stonehaven sign, limps in that way. She sits there, frozen. And in her little eyes, she sees a man, a white man, a different man, 
lying in the road and the memory makes her legs tremble. Lucy says, that white man out on the highway? Tell the truth, you starry slammed on brakes. You wish you'd run him over. Jesus, Lord, help me now. Jesus, Lord, bring me back to this world. Sunrise grill, blinking lighthouse, here, no sign of the white man. I'll just finish there. So, Miss oh Reba. Gosh, I love <laughs> Ms. Reba um, embarks on one of her habits is to write letters of protest. She has a typewriter. She went to secretarial school long, long ago. And she starts writing letters to the colonel, not knowing his name or where exactly he lives. And she starts trying to track him down because when she gets home, she sees there's a huge dent in her car, a dent the size of a white man's thigh. And it ex the dent exposes the fact that her car is completely rusted. And she decides that here's one white man who is not going to get away with damaging her life. So she goes after him and there's quite a feud yeah. between them. Yeah. <laughs> That's one way to put it. <laughs> yep. Yep. Oh my gosh. And you know, something as I'm listening to you reading, which I love how you read, um, that was really great, but it's, I love that her voice kind of, you know, she's, it's got some humor to it too, which is kind of a neat thing. A very complex character, you know? Yes. Yeah. I really Thank love you. her. Um, there's a line, I wish, you know, I feel like I could just talk with you for like four hours about this stuff because it's so interesting. But there's a line I really wanted to talk with you about a little bit um, from the Colonel that where he says, I feel so old and so young at the same time. Um, mm. And I feel like when I read that, I was really, I felt um, probably one of the ways you're hoping readers will feel towards the end of reading this book is just sort of like, I mean, as a white person, it's, there's so much to learn still, right? So there's just like, let's yeah. begin again, that type of idea. So can you talk yeah. a little bit about that? Just, yeah, that I idea, love that. that thought? I love, I love that insight, Hannah. Um, I really do think uh, as people get older, and I've, I've gotten quite a bit older since I started writing this book 30 <laughs> some years ago, um, <laughs> they have a choice about assessing their life and figuring out um, uh, what their life led them to, where it came from, and where they might like to go from here. And, you know, there are so many uh, people um, in their 60s, 70s, 80s who are still active, who, you know, are, are, are living longer. Um, that when people get to a certain age, I think they do reassess and they have to make decisions about whether the pain in their life leads them towards bitterness or towards changing. And I, it's very weird. I mean, th things that I think are imagined happen in the book are sort of happening in my life as well. I feel like I'm about to go through some kind of transformation. I don't really know what it is, but um, writing this book, completing it, and going out on book tour is, um, I've, I've done it before, but I feel like this time there's something really shifting for me. And so, um, right. and, and uh, I, I know so many people who are kind of turning towards a more spiritual awareness when they get to a certain age. I think that's a really kind of a, a important stage in life, um, right. maybe toward, towards acceptance. Um, so it's something I'm personally thinking about a lot as well. I think transformative is a really great word for this novel. Um, you mean, you mm. see all the characters that you write about transform in themselves while you're reading the book. And then I think, you know, for people who are re like from the first page to the last page, you feel differently about a lot of things. And like, I can say that honestly, I feel, I really, believe that um it's a really beautiful experience and it is transformative um really really amazing thank you uh, so much you know i just really appreciate you writing it it's really beautiful um <laughs> thank you <laughs> well you know yeah. i just put about everything i know from the last 30 years of my life in it so i'm like i was about to say i mean <laughs> 
30 years. I mean, That's it, gonna, no wonder I mean, it's good, right? Charge, like <laughs> write the next one. Um, so I have one more question for you. You are a teacher, you're an award-winning teacher, you're a writer, you've, you've worked with tons of writers in North Carolina, across the country. Um, if you could tell your younger writing self one thing, maybe at the start of writing Indigo Field 30 years ago, what would you now tell her? What would you tell that Marjorie? Uh, oh boy, I would tell her, um, don't, uh, don't be afraid to ask for help early on. I had to do this all by myself every, you know, it was a story idea that was kind of crazy. And I thought about, thought a lot about asking people I knew, I knew, I know I had some mentors and helpers, but it just seemed like bad timing to ask them. And I felt like I would be a burden to them to ask them. But um, I love um, being asked for help. And I, you know, of course I do that in my classes. Um, and, uh, I I think that would have been really, really better for me. I was not in an ongoing workshop. I was in several um, writing workshops and that I um, I did get great feedback and great support from friends for that. But I know I could have used a little bit more intensive help than that. On the other hand, I can say, I, you know, I just, I did this crazy thing. I wrote, I rewrote a novel about 40 times and ended up with something that works. Oh, because right. it didn't work for a really long time. And I went, on, um, mm, I yeah. went on, I went on writing retreats, uh, mostly in the West and, you know, wide open spaces, completely different. And I would just look at it and I would like have no idea what it was I was doing. I knew what I wanted to do, but I didn't know how to get there. So, um, uh, yeah, I think I could have could have got it would be, be been good for me to get in a really great workshop that, that um, I, was focused I on that. And I kept saying, no, no, you want to do it your own way. You want to you want to do something right. different from everybody, you know. So that was a little bit of ego problem for me that well, I could have I feel like, walked away from. <laughs> I feel like now you're kind of the queen of writing community, though. You know, so you're definitely oh. practicing that advice to yourself. You definitely, yeah. I mean, you teach all these workshops, oh, you connect great. with people all the time, and um, but I, I mean, I think that's a true thing in a lot of writers. I think it's it's kind of yeah. like I don't want to ask for help. I don't want to get the feet. You know, it's it's hard to to ask right. for help and ask for feedback and that kind of thing because it can be scary too, right? So I yeah. mean, it's I'll, it's I know what people are feeling when they ask yeah. for help. Let me put it that way. <laughs> and I I because I really didn't get it in the way I'd hoped to. Um, you know, it didn't kind of just show up for me. Um, uh, a lot of misconnections and right. um, I. I wanted to provide that for other people. And you know, when you do something like that, when you kind of say, okay, here's here's my inner angst. Yeah. Let me fix it for somebody else because I couldn't do it for myself. Then um, you know, there's a lot of joy in that. Yeah, because there is. It, it, you know, it's the same. It's the old spiritual talk about the wounded healer when you yeah. you're able to take your, you know, take the things that have concerned you or have been difficult for you and make the road a little bit easier and build a community for somebody else. That is a nice, a good thing to do for writers. I love that. So, I love that. Yeah. Uh, well, I wish I, like I said, I, I feel like I need to have more time with you just to talk about the book and all of its themes. It's just so, oh, so extensive, but well, let's do, uh, it. Let's thank do you. it again. <laughs> Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Round two. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us today. This was awesome. And all of our listeners, please go buy a copy of Indigo Field. At the time this airs, it will be available everywhere. Um, you will not regret it. But thank you so much, Marjorie. Mm -hmm. Thanks. My pleasure. We have a newsletter called Beyond 300, and we'd love to have you sign up. This is where we share what's coming on the podcast, provide helpful links, and keep you updated on the podcast and the hosts. You can sign up at charlottereaderspodcast.com or the websites of the hosts, leandiswade.com, sararcherwrites.com, or spellboundpublicrelations.com. And by the way, we won't spam you because that takes way too much time. 
All right, we're in Act 2, uh, writing topics with Charlotte Litt uh, and our blog post for the day, starting first with uh, Paul Reale. This is uh, the second in a three-part series he's doing for us on the biology of writing, and this one focuses on uh, where to write, so let's listen in. Hi, I'm Paul Reale, co-founder of Charlotte Litt, with a two-minute writing tip for Charlotte Readers Podcast. This is the second of three tips about what I call the biology of writing. Last time, we looked at when in the day you write. Today, we'll talk about where you write in the physical conditions that support it. There are people who can write anywhere. Scott Turo of Presumed Innocent and other legal thrillers famously wrote on the train commuting into work. I'm pretty flexible myself. If I have my laptop and a place to sit, I can get some writing done. I didn't decide this, though. Our biology determines our preferences. And if you're like most writers, you work best under certain physical conditions. Your two-part action step then is to determine what those conditions are for yourself and then find ways to make them happen. Here are some elements of physical space to consider. What's in the space where you write best? Do you prefer a Spartan environment with few distractions? Or do you prefer having things to look at, such as a window to the world outside? Do you like to actually be out in the world, say on a screened porch or deck, patio, yard, or park? Do you like to have sound, say specific music playing, or perhaps ambient sound, or maybe you need to have no sound at all? What is your ideal writing seat and surface? Do you prefer a desk chair or a sofa or maybe something else? Do you like a notebook or a computer? Do you prefer to have your writing tools on a desk or table or on your lap? How important is the temperature in the room? What kind of lighting do you prefer? You should have a good, honest talk with yourself about these factors. What you'll find is that some matter not at all and some matter completely. Your next step then is to find places where you can make the conditions fit what your biology prefers. Now, I'm not suggesting that you be fussy and permit yourself to write only when conditions are perfect. Having less than ideal conditions is the perfect excuse not to write. What I'm saying instead is that when you write, Having the physical conditions that match your biological preferences can only help your writing along. For more two-minute tips from Charlotte Litt, listen to Beyond 300 episodes of this podcast or visit charlottelitt.org slash tips. All right, Paul, thanks for that. Another interesting uh, tip. I hadn't really thought about it as the biology of writing. That is, your biology has something to do with these ideas about uh where, when, and how you write under what circumstances. Uh, but uh, let's talk about that a second. Uh, Sarah, you um, you can write in different places, right? But you have sort of a, a shrine that you write in front of? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I love the series that Paul is doing because I feel like it is actually really important to the writing process is figuring out kind of the nuts and bolts of how you write the best. Um, and, I mean, most writers don't have that much time for writing. A lot of us have day jobs, have, you know, kids to take care of. So, Finding ways to maximize the writing time that you do have, I think, and making sure that the conditions are ideal to actually be productive are really important. I know for me, like I, I can get work done under a variety of conditions, but I'm definitely more productive under some conditions than other. Like, um, if I move away from my desk and go like to a coffee shop or something, or even to the patio or another chair in my house, I tend to be more productive. Um, I like having it be pretty quiet so I can kind of also change the work that I'm doing depending on how productive I think I'm going to be in the setting. Like for instance, I have a writer's group I go to, um, about once a week that meets at a coffee shop. It's like a coffee shop slash bookshop and people get together and they bring their laptops and they chat some and they write some. And for that, like it's, it's good and I can get some work done, but since there's a little bit of background noise with music and sometimes people talking, I know that it's harder for me to concentrate. So it's sometimes I don't get as much of like my real writing, writing work done there. But if I can go and do some research or do some kind of brainstorming, that kind of thing, it's a good setting for that. So yeah, I think just, you know, experimenting, finding out what works for you and then being conscious about choosing to put yourself in that setting or create that setting can actually really help to maximize your time. I would ask you, Hannah, where you like to write, but I should ask where Gwen likes to <laughs> On write. the floor of her room. <laughs> <laughs> Underneath her, like, activity gym. <laughs> I've done a... F- Those little things that you look up at as a baby on your yes. back and you check I've it with your feet. I've done a fair amount of work 
right there. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's kind of interesting. I'm really fascinated by this whole series that he's doing now, just like me, like the conditions that I am able to do things in now. Um, I've always been a very particular person as far as like, you know, I have to be in, like, let's talk about sleep, for example. I'm like, I'm not a camper, right? Like, (laughs) I can't be out there sleeping in the woods. That's like not me. (laughs) I'm like, I gotta be in perfect sleeping conditions, very quiet, dark room, cool fan on, that kind of thing. And I feel like with writing, um, in really any kind of work in general or working out, like when he mentioned like the uh, music thing, like I I feel like I have to listen to a really specific type of music when I run um, or if I'm kickboxing, stuff like that. Um, I can't be listening to like classical Mozart or something, you know what I mean? (laughs) But like if I'm writing something, so when I'm pitch writing, that's kind of when I need it to be like super quiet because I can't hear other words if I'm trying to come up with words, if that makes sense. Um, But I feel like now that I've had Gwen, you know, and you know my my in-laws have her a few days a week most of the time but I still do a fair amount of work uh with her well like a lot actually (laughs) so I mean I feel like um I've just been able to sort of adapt to that and it's almost like I just I can do so much in like 30 minutes now because (laughs) I'm just like she's asleep let's do this and I just do it like that so um yeah (laughs) the conditions have changed but (laughs) I feel like we're learning a lot about Hannah in the last couple of episodes. We learned bef- in the last episode that she was almost named Sarah. Mm-hmm. Now we're learning about kickboxing. Oh, yeah. Love um, to kickbox. Yeah, you know, Got to protect yourself. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, Got to put my energy yeah. somewhere. Podcasting <laughs> is a dangerous business. You know, so, uh, but this, this post does tie in well to uh, our book three in the series, which is on writing process and tools. And one of the things I found interesting was that when we were compiling these quotes that there, were, uh, there was a lot more conversation by the authors about that. And I don't know that, whether that's because I asked, we asked more questions about it or whether it just naturally came up organically. But writers like to talk about this thing, about where you write and how you write. And I know that some of the best-selling authors, I, I, I remember Craig Johnson talking about, he, he puts a certain kind of music on to get him in the mood while he writes. And he might even have a play. And some authors have playlists, you know, that they play. And then some authors who are marketing savvy, will turn that playlist into something that they can use to promote the book. You know, they have it as an available extra, mm-hmm. you know, when you buy the book and, or you can just up you know, the songs or whatever. So, um, which is such a cool idea. You know, it's, it's, mm-hmm. a, yeah, it's a cool idea. And, and so I, I think, um, again, because it's biology, we get back to the fact that, uh, you, you know, just as the body and your brain evolve, this idea of, where you do it and how you do it evolves as well. And for me, it's it's oftentimes the kind of writing I'm doing. I can sometimes write uh, copy for the podcast and doing things like this with music playing in the background, right? But if I've got to really concentrate on a piece or an essay, I might like to have total silence, you know, in the room or something. And then sometimes I was could go to the co-working space and do some things, uh, maybe work on a synopsis or something that's uh, – you know, related to the book or a marketing piece related to the book, and I can do it with more noise around. So it, I think it just varies. Um, choose what works um, and, you know, go with it. Uh, all right. Well, um, great uh, post, Paul. Appreciate that. Uh, we'll be right back, and we're going to have uh, our co-host, Sarah Archer. Woohoo! <laughs> If you are an author who would like to be featured on the show, check out our submission process on the contact page of charlottemeaterspodcast.com. Please understand that given the number of submissions we receive, we can't respond to every submission or feature everyone who submits, but with the Beyond 300 format, we are featuring more authors in many different ways. You might be interviewed or provide us some audio content for us to play, or participate in an author or marketing talk, or get a shout out for your publication. One way to be sure to get a mention on the show is to submit a 750-word or less blog post to our community blog on a writing or marketing topic. If it's accepted, we may have you on to discuss the content. Just go to charlottereaderspodcast.com and look for the community blog for details. All right, we're back with, uh, we're going to have our community uh, blog post, and this is uh, from co-host Sarah Archer, who is not just a co-host, she's a novelist, she's a screenwriter, she's a pug owner, uh, and her title is Art of Receiving Feedback. And before we jump into this, Sarah, I would just put you on the spot a little bit and interview you for just a second. <laughs> I did interview you on the show uh, way back when for the Plus One. Um, 
And I know from recollection that you spent a lot of time jealous, of course, in St. Martin and, you know, moving around different places. And you actually got to go back mm -hmm. this last December and do that and have that experience. But uh, you were kind of a world traveler. And then you ended up, uh, you know, right down the road here from Charlotte. Um, tell us a little bit about your uh, your journey uh, to doing this thing that you're so passionate about, this thing called Yeah. Running. Well, first of all, as soon as you said pug owner, I think you summoned my dog. <laughs> <laughs> He got up and he like scratched his way into the room. William, so I don't know if you can hear his it's nails his name, in the background. It's his name, uh, Alexa. I'm not gonna say. It. Oh, she just got thrown oh, William is like the male <laughs> Alexa. Yes, yes. Yeah. He's always listening. Um, yeah. So I, I guess like the writing journey has been kind of a lifelong thing for me. I, I've always enjoyed reading and writing. Um, and I studied English in college. I actually um, focused mostly on poetry, but like there's not much you can do professionally with poetry <laughs> unless you're going to be a um, creative writing teacher. But yeah, so I, I also studied some screenwriting in college and I went out to LA and, and worked in development there at different film and TV companies um, and pursued screenwriting. And then I wrote my first novel and now I kind of go back and forth and dabble between screenwriting and fiction um, and also some poetry here and there. And this post actually is, I wrote it initially for a group called the Phoenix Screenwriters Association for their newsletter and blog. So it's kind of geared more towards screenwriters and some of the things in the post are specific to screenwriting. Um, but I think most of the overall principles about how to take feedback and how to make the best use of notes are applicable for other writers too. So I'm curious, uh, do you like screenwriting more or novel writing more oh. or poetry writing more? It's or like what? trying to choose between yeah. children or something. Like, Aww, I don't know. I, I, so nice. I love all of them. <laughs> yeah. Like they're in different ways. I think they're, they all have different things they can offer. Like with screenwriting, I love that it's a visual medium. So, you know, they say, um, Oh gosh, William was like trying to climb into my chair now. <laughs> um, like, I'm your child. You know, <laughs> yes, he's like, you, you called me? Um, yeah, so I think it's like they say uh, a picture is worth a thousand words, you know, like in a movie or a, a TV show, you can have an image and you can communicate so much with just like the perfectly chosen image or expression from an actor or something like that in a way that it's harder to do on the page. Um, but I also really enjoy writing prose and kind of getting into the head of a character and getting into that voice or poetry where you can really like get into the, the music of the language I enjoy. So I, I just, um, different benefits from each of them. All right. He's like pulling my cords out now. William is really trying to be on the show yeah. right now. When he wants something, he wants it. He's trying to get into my that, lap. That last, little, that last little piece there, William is trying to eat the cords. He's eating it again. Hold it. Let's stop. Will. Uh, He's like trying to climb up. He wants up. to be a podcast. <laughs> And this is a pug, by the way. This is not like a golden retriever. No, so, he's, yeah. he's very sleepy, so he's like mad that I'm not just picking him up. I can I, see his little sleepy face. I saw him in the background, like waddling <laughs> up. He's yeah. like, I'm coming up there. Yeah. <laughs> well, Hannah, I know you probably have a question for Sarah about uh, the background and all this. Uh, it could be pug related. It could be. But... I mean, does William ever influence your writing? <laughs> Um, I think he influences Honestly. it in the way that Gwen influences your work by like making you, you know, when you get to work, you work. Yes. <laughs> and when he wants to be in my lap, then I have to drop everything and <laughs> it's William time. Uh, um, I yeah. love that. You should write like a well, so... collection of short stories or like a collection of poetry about William. <laughs> he oh, is I the should. perfect like William. <laughs> so much material there. <laughs> yes. Well, let's do this. Uh, let's uh, listen in, Sarah, to your blog post on the art of receiving feedback, and then we'll, we'll talk about it. The art of receiving feedback. A man gave his friend a gift of a saddle. It was beautiful with the finest hand tool leather and mother of pearl fittings, perfectly molded for the recipient's measurements. You look disappointed, the man said. Don't you like it? It's marvelous, his friend said, but I don't know how to ride a horse. Feedback is a gift, but the most insightful notes in the world are useless if you don't know what to do with them. How do you take those notes, even the notes that are maybe not quite so insightful, and make the most of them? First and always be gracious. I use the analogy of a gift of love because it's true. Feedback really is a gift. Someone has taken the time to read your writing, and if they work in Hollywood, their time is almost certainly constrained, and given the benefit of their expertise to help you make your project better. So no matter how negative your knee-jerk reaction to a note might be, thank the reader. Relationships are everything in this business, and taking feedback well is an opportunity to show that you're the kind of team player people want to work with. Don't be afraid to ask questions for clarification or bounce around ideas, but resist the urge to argue a note. 
There's usually no point. It's your writing, and at the end of the day, you get to decide what to do with it, so you don't need to convince anyone of your take. The exception is when the note giver is someone actively involved in your project, say a producer or development exec. In that case, you have to balance protecting your creative vision with compromising to keep the project moving forward and keep yourself attached. Give yourself time. Receiving and incorporating feedback is a process, so unless you're under a deadline, don't rush that process unnecessarily. If you like a note straight away and find yourself inspired by it, then go with that momentum and jot down your own ideas about changes you want to make. But it might be best to not make those changes immediately. Let the ideas have some time to marinate. Particularly with notes you're less certain about or don't initially agree with, don't discard them right away. If you put the note aside and come back to them later, you might see something in a new light that sparks an idea. Consider the source of your feedback. One advantage of being in a writer's group is that you get to know your fellow group members over time. What they're writing, what they like and dislike, what sorts of notes they typically give. If there's a writer whose work you admire and whose notes to other writers in the group you agree with, their critiques are probably worth spending more significant time with. If, on the other hand, another writer is putting out material that's very different from what you write or enjoy, or you often find yourself questioning the notes you hear them give to other group members, then still consider their feedback, but you probably don't need to bend over backwards to use it if it doesn't seem helpful to you. Remember that writing is extremely subjective and reactions reflect personal taste. Writers who are outside of your intended audience might still be capable of giving great notes, but don't be offended if they're not as excited about what you're creating. And writers of different experience levels and who work in different media or genres will bring different perspectives. When I get notes from screenwriters, they almost always encourage me to cut. Fiction writers encourage me to expand. Filter the feedback you're getting through the lens of who's giving it to you. Look for the note behind the note. At first glance, a note may seem contrary to what you're trying to accomplish, unhelpful, or just confusing. Rather than rejecting it out of hand, take a step back and try to understand what your reader may have been thinking or feeling that prompted this note. If they've told you to cut a certain scene, what might motivate that? Is it slowing down the pacing? Is it repetitive in some way to another scene? Is it tonally off from the rest of the script? It might be that the changes a critiquer suggests aren't in line with your vision, but the notes could still point at another root issue that you can address in your own way. While it's important not to reject a note just because you initially don't like or understand it, it's also good to question whether you're dismissing a note just because you don't want to take it. I know my brain is pretty adept at finding excuses for why a certain piece of feedback isn't valid for my script, especially if that feedback requires extensive rewriting. When a reader suggests a significant change, I have to make sure I'm not resisting it just because I don't want to do the work. Look for patterns in notes. This is one reason why getting notes from many people and people with a variety of perspectives is especially useful. You can identify common threads. If I get versions of the same note from multiple people on a script, I'm more likely to dig in and really try to address it. And if I'm seeing consistent feedback on numerous pieces of writing over time, I can use that to gauge how people are responding to my writing overall and look for areas where I may want to rethink my technique or refine the audience I'm targeting. Remember your vision. As you slog through multiple drafts, potentially over months or years, and hear more and more outside opinions and reactions to your work, it can be easy to lose sight of what excited you about this story in the first place. There are an infinite number of possible takes on any story. The one you are writing is yours and yours alone. Other people's ideas can help you improve your work, but don't let them cloud or replace your own style and creativity. Their tastes may not line up with yours, but that doesn't mean either of you are right or wrong. Watching movies you love that are similar to what you want to create can help fire up that energy again when you start to lose it. Think back to what first gave you the passion to write the script, and let that be your pole star. Don't get discouraged. No piece and no writer is above criticism. The older I get and the more experience I have with writing, I have no less need for other people's eyes on my work. Getting constructive criticism doesn't mean that you're a bad writer or that your script is bad. It's part of the process. The best screenwriters and authors in the world still have their work developed and edited. The subjective nature of writing means that we can all benefit from outside perspectives. If someone gives you particularly harsh feedback, just know that any writer who's putting their work out there has been in your position. If there's anything constructive to be gained from the feedback, use that. But then set the rest out of your mind and don't let it dictate your vision of yourself or your writing. All right, that's, uh, that's, that's great uh, advice, Sarah. I look forward to talking. Before we talk about this, I'm just curious, Sarah, you, you're in a lot of writing mm-hmm. groups, uh, so you give feedback and re- receive feedback on a regular basis. How long have you been doing that? Oh, gosh. Um, 
I think even in high school, I, I took a couple of electives on creative writing, which were kind of um, like a, a critique group format almost, where you would bring in writing pieces and, you know, talk about them as a group. And certainly in college, I did that. Most of the writing classes I took in college were that kind of basically like a critique group, but just as a class. Um, so definitely since I'm since I was a teenager, I guess. And it's just such a important part of the process. I think that's really the best way. I mean, you can you can read and you can study writing and kind of actually study and talk about the craft and, and take lessons in that sense. But I think just actually doing the work and hearing other people's feedback on your work and also doing the same for them and reading and analyzing their work and thinking about how it can be made stronger, I think is one of the best things that you can do to kind of teach yourself how to write. Yeah, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, this probably being an evolutionary process for you. Have you gotten better at receiving feedback over the years and uh, better at giving it as well? I, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I mean, hopefully with as much of it as I've done over time, I've learned something. Um, I think I've gotten, I don't know if it's ever gotten easier to know how to take notes or know what to do with them. It feels like that can always be difficult, but I think maybe I've gotten better at sort of filtering and understanding what notes are helpful for me and what I'm trying to accomplish versus what's just someone else's taste and vision that isn't necessarily um, aligned with my own. And so I think that's something that you kind of develop over time is your own personal filter. Mm, that's good. Well, I was thinking about this, uh, <clears throat> you know, they used to give the Myers-Briggs test to, to people to figure out if they got along in a group. And it seems like that's something that probably would be a nice uh, form of admission to a mm -hmm. writing group because uh, different different personality characteristics and traits could probably destroy or make a writing group really good. Yeah, right? yeah, and I've I've seen drama in writers groups. Like it happens Ooh. sometimes, but <laughs> thankfully it's not too common. <laughs> Usually people are you know they get along, but yeah, if you if you get people with strong opinions who state them uh, very briskly, things can go down. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, the, I mean, a couple of interesting things you say here. Um, I mean to anybody who participates, don't argue with the person. It, it, it makes no sense, right? I mean, as a lawyer, my temptation is to justify, you know, what I've done, right? That's how I started out in the writing world with when I got my first critiques. But, but wait a minute, this is what I, this is what I meant. No, you don't, you're not, you're not understanding what, and then I started realizing, oh, wait a minute. Well, if they don't understand it, it's not their fault. It's my fault as the writer. If it's not clear, then I got to make it more clear. And, I really liked your point, Sarah, about how you look for patterns. Um, and of course, if you're seeing three out of four, you know, that say, you know, this doesn't really look like sliced cheese that you're describing. And you might want to look at the sliced cheese that you're talking about. But if there's only one person who has an arcane comment every time y'all get together, you can kind of maybe push that one, you know, aside. But, uh, even more is this idea of trying to understand, okay, you don't agree with the comment at first reaction, but it's important to look further to try to find out why it is that they said what they said. It's like, okay, they said you should cut this. And your reaction is, no, that's integral to the scene. It's integral to the plot. It's integral to whatever. But why are they saying it? You mentioned pacing or you mentioned other things that could be dragging. And then there could be ways to fix it to fix the pacing with that totally cutting, you know, a scene. So good stuff. Hannah, what was some of your reactions? Yeah, I love that. I think um, a couple of different things, but I think it's really interesting how you have to kind of separate your brain with screenwriting and uh, like just like fiction writing in general, like noveling, noveling. <laughs> um, I mean, I think it's just crazy. So it's like, if you're getting, how do you do that? I mean, if you're getting, do you have to, like, so you get, feedback to expand if you're writing in fiction and then if you're writing a screenplay they say like cut things like do you have to kind of like yeah. I mean <laughs> bring your mind into like a specific space like when you I guess we're talking about the biology of where you write too do you have like a specific writing place for screenwriting versus fiction writing no that that's interesting maybe I should try that and see if it does anything for me mentally <laughs> but <laughs> yeah I, I I mean I the kind of process of mechanically where I write and how I do it is the same for all of my different types of writing. But um, it is definitely like the mindset for doing something like a screenplay versus a short story versus a novel versus a poem. Like it's all mm -hmm. different skills and techniques. And so, um, but I think it can be good to get 
feedback from different types of writers too. Like say I'm, I'm working on a screenplay, definitely screenwriters will give me helpful notes on that and they kind of understand the format and the conventions of length and that kind of thing. Um, but it's also helpful to get notes from uh, novelists on a screenplay. Right. Like they, they may not understand as much about kind of the pacing of a scene and kind of the typical way that a screenplay is written and the expectations for that, but they still have really good notes about character development and story. Um, and sometimes they'll notice things that screenwriters aren't as, um, aren't as apt to notice. So I think it's helpful to get a variety of perspectives too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> thanks, uh, Sarah, for this blog post, a lot of good stuff in it. Uh, we could keep talking about this uh, all day long, but look, just uh, go out there and don't be afraid to put your work out there to have other people give it feedback because when you do, you're going to learn something new and take what works. And like I say, when I offer advice to people about their writing or give feedback, it's like, Hey, take what works and what doesn't work, just reject it. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's your story, you know, but use what helps and reject what doesn't. All right. We'll be uh, right back to uh, have some book recommendations and uh, find out about what's coming next. You can subscribe to Charlotte Reader's podcast wherever you'd like to get your podcasts. We're on all major podcast platforms. And the best part is, it's free. Oh, and if you like what we're doing, please leave us a review, because when you do, we travel much farther and wider in podcast land. All right, here we are in Act 3 with book recommendations, uh, starting off with the uh, recommendations from the host. Uh, we'll start with Hannah this time. Hannah, what wow. you got? Um, I am recommending a book by Emily St. John Mandel, who, um, called Sea of Tranquility. You guys might've read Station Eleven or seen the show. Um, that, that was kind of one of my favorite books ever. I thought it was really cool. Um, and I'm like midway through this one. So, but I can already tell that I'm going to just love it just as much. I already kind of do. It's, um, similar sort of idea. It's, it's kind of in a different, uh, society basically. Um, it's about a character named Edwin. And when he was 18 years old, he, um, kind of left polite society and entered his own kind of realm in the forest. Um, and it's sort of just about learning about how to survive <laughs> basically like being a different person in a different location. Um, there's a pandemic theme in there kind of similar to how station 11 starts out so um kind of about building society and connections with people um the timeline's a little bit shifty so that's kind of an interesting thing too uh she does a really great job with that not not all authors can you know jump around from different time points so but it's a really great book really well written um kind of gives you a little escapism you can take a step out of your brain and into another world so it's it's a good one that's great uh sarah what you got yeah, that, I want to read that one too. Um, but I have been reading or listening to on Libro.fm Ghost Music by On You. Um, I was drawn into this one by the title and also by the cover. It has like a really um, beautifully illustrated but interesting cover with mushrooms on it. <laughs> and mushrooms show up in interesting ways during the story. It's about this woman living in Beijing. Um, she used to be a concert pianist and she's kind of given that up and now just teaches piano now and she's lost touch with that part of herself and she's married but there are some kind of issues in her marriage and as the story unfolds she starts to uncover some secrets about her husband um there's also like this older well-regarded pianist she encounters and starts to develop a relationship with um like i said there are mushrooms that show up in some interesting ways during the story so it's an interesting book i'm i'm enjoying it and i'm looking forward to seeing where it's going to end up that's great. Uh, well, we talk about creativity all the time on this show, and uh, we've had Kathy Pickens on the show a number of times. We're going to have her again uh, coming up in June for her latest uh, book, uh, True Crime Book of the South. And uh, But she's written a book called Create, Developing Your Creative Process. And uh, I highly recommend this book. It's a, uh, it's a great tool for getting your brain thinking about uh, creativity, and it's got some good processes uh, for rambling uh, and then uh, putting stuff down on paper. So good stuff. Check out Kathy Pickens. And you can go back and listen to her episodes on the podcast as well. We've got a place on the website for uh, all the episodes and all the authors. You can find her and click on her and listen. But, uh, yeah, I know, Hannah, you're familiar with that book too, having worked yeah, with Kathy. Yeah, I love Kathy. And I feel like she's just the, you know, definition of a creative person. Um, kind of similar to you with that like background in law and sort of more like concrete uh, things in the world like she's just been able to really deep dive into her creative side and use that 
whole part of her experience to her advantage, kind of like you again. Um, but yeah, she's amazing. That's a really good book. That's great. All right, well, let's hear what Mark West has to say this week. Hello, this is Mark West with the Storied Charlotte blog. My book recommendation today is a new biography about President Jimmy Carter. It's called Jimmy Carter, Citizen of the South, and it's written by Kay Lanning Minchu. The book came out from the University of Georgia Press in 2021. I'm in the process of writing an article about Jimmy Carter, so I've been doing a lot of reading about him. This book really stands out. The author provides an excellent overview of Jimmy Carter's life and career, and the book also includes many, many wonderful photographs that really bring Carter's life into focus. I highly recommend Jimmy Carter, Citizen of the South. Yeah, thank you, uh, Mark, for that. Uh, Jimmy Carter, everybody's thinking about him these days, um, and uh, sounds like a great book to read. All right, uh, we got another episode coming up next. Uh, Sarah, can you tell us what's coming? Uh, yeah, in the next episode, we're going to feature screenwriter Rachel Kohler Croft and her fiction debut, Stone Cold Fox, which Pace Magazine calls a blast of perfectly wicked escapism. Um, that's a fun one. And then we're also going to feature none other than Hannah LaRue with her blog post on pitching your book. And of course, um, a thought-provoking Charlotte two-minute tip, plus elevator pitches and some reading recommendations. All right, Hannah, take us out of here. Read on, ride on, and I'm trying to think of something else I can put from this episode on, rock on. <laughs> Don't forget to rock on. It's become your trademark on Charlie's podcast. Rock on. Rock on. All right. <laughs>